Good morning. Welcome home, family. So glad to see everyone here worshiping with us this morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Galatians, and we'll be starting Galatians chapter 5 here in a bit. Uh, so you can flip uh, to it, uh, Galatians chapter 5, in your Bibles if you so wish, or uh, it will be on the screen when we get there. But before we head into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, how you love us, how you uh, reveal yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, the, for the very fact that we do have your word, that we can know you, that we can see what you've done and how you have saved us and how we should respond with all of who we are. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word, as we open up Galatians chapter 5, that you show us, respond of how we're supposed to uh, live our lives in light of the freedoms that you have given us. Lord, we love you. We want to be your people. Grow us in those ways. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Freedom. It's very popular nowadays. I think it's always been popular. But freedom, especially around here in America, the land of the free, we like to focus and we like to talk about our freedoms. Uh, but people talk about freedom in different ways. Depending on who you're talking to and what they're talking about, they could be talking about very different things. You talk to a nationalist, they're talking about, um, you know, on a national scale, what freedom looks like. They're talking about freedom from outside rule or outside um, uh, people telling them what to do. You talk to economists about freedom, and they're probably going to be talking about free trade or freedom from tariffs or something along those lines. You talk to a capitalist about freedom, they're going to be talking about the free enterprise that they're allowed to engage in. You talk to a communist about freedom, they're probably going to talk about freedom from exploitation from those capitalists. And again, again, if depending on who you talk to, what we mean by freedom changes. What we're talking about changes. And when the Bible talks about freedom, and especially Paul in the book of Galatians talks about freedom and talking about how we're freeing Christ. And so when we come... Is he speaking about freedom as we think about it in America or how we think about it when we watch Braveheart and we want to cry with William Wallace? Freedom! Is that what he's speaking about or is he talking about something a little different, a little bit nuanced when he talks about Christian freedom? As we open up Galatians chapter 5, as he talks about freedom, we'll see just what he means when he says we're free in Christ. So you have your Bibles? I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 or follow us on the screen and we're going to read the first 15 verses here. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say that to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen apart from, uh, fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you by a little leaven? Leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will, n will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. 
But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is filled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When you read this text, or when I read this text and I look at Paul's argument, I would, I would, I would say his main thrust is the idea of you honor God with your freedom. You honor God with your freedom. He's talking about the freedom we have in Christ. He's talking about the freedom we have because of Christ saved us. And how do we respond is that we use that freedom to honor God. The funny thing about it, I would argue you could use that for any type of freedom you talk about or any type of thing in our lives that you talk about. That as Christians, we use those benefits, those where we are in life, to honor God. That we honor God with everything that he's given us. That we honor God with our that he has given us to approach him. And Paul is laying out this argument that we honor God with our freedom by once again maybe going back and talking about these false teachers that are coming up, coming in behind him and the false messages they bring. And I would argue that he's actually bringing to a, a conclusion this argument that he's been laying the groundwork for for several chapters. That we're free in Christ and if we believe we can be accepted and before God, through following the law, we fall into slavery to the law. And so he sets up this dichotomy, if you will. You're either free in Christ, or you're a slave once again to the law. And he's speaking to people who have received the gospel message. And so he says, stand firm in this. Do not waver. Do not be led astray by people who want to come and bring plausible arguments that are going to degrade who Jesus was and what he did for us. Stand firm in the gospel and do not be moved because you know you have that freedom in Christ. So he's arguing that we should stand firm in that. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this freedom that we have in Christ? It's fundamentally a freedom of conscience. Is a freedom to know, hey, we are not accepted before God based on how we live, based on how we God, based on one thing and one thing alone, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this freedom that we have frees us from having to follow the law in order to be accepted by God. It's a freedom, from, a freedom to be able to approach the throne of grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the freedom that Paul is speaking about. He says, we latch on to it and we stand firm in it. This freedom is an objective reality. It's a truth of what has happened as Christ stood in our place, as he died in our place upon the cross, that our debt was truly paid, that he truly fulfilled the law for us, that he did everything needed for salvation. This is a reality, a truth, historical fact. And we can understand that, and we believe that when we believe in who Jesus is. But sometimes the subjectiveness of it, the, the experience of it, is hard to feel. We can read our Bibles and we see this truth and we see how God loves us, and we can say, yes, I believe that truth. I believe this happened. I believe Christ died for us. I believe this, but sometimes I don't feel like it. 
Sometimes when I am having a bad day, things are not going right for me. When I have snapped at my spouse or when I don't have patience like I should with my kids, love me so much. How could he have saved me in spite of myself? I think that's why Paul says, stand firm then. Because he realized people can grab hold of this objective truth of how we're saved, but the, the subjectiveness, the experience of it might sometimes be fleeting or sometimes might, might, might flow through our fingers and we can't hold on to it as, as well as we should. And so he says, stand firm on this truth. Never let it escape your mind. Never let the whispers of the enemy cloud your mind about how much God loves you or what you have to do to be accepted before him. Stand firm on the truth that is Christ and him alone because you are free in him. He has made you free and know it and live it. This is the, this is the truth that uh, is spoken in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is the truth that we stand firm in. That there's no, no more condemnation for us from God because all He has left for us is love, grace, mercy. And we stand firm in that as we have that freedom in Christ. Teachers have come behind Paul and they're speaking to these people who believed and believed this gospel, and he outlines just how false they are. Fundamentally, because they're not honoring God and what they're saying because they are clouding their issue, if you will, at the best, or they're really kind of subverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're false, as Paul says. Why? Because they treat Christ as insignificant. We see that in verse 2 when he says that if you accept circumcision at the shorthand for the law, if you're going to follow the law... Christ will be of no advantage to you, meaning that when you are thinking you can be justified, made right before God by what you do, how you live, basically Christ is insignificant. You're saying, yeah, he did something, but not enough to save me. I have to save myself. And Paul says, no, this is false. Christ did everything that you need for salvation, and you stand firm in that. And so these false people, Teachers are bringing this false message that dishonor God because they make less of Christ. And I love how John Calvin, the, the reformer, says, wants half of Christ loses the whole. It's this idea that you can't just say, hey, I just want a little bit of Christ and think he did a little bit. No, he did it all. If he be anything in our lives, he must be everything. To quote another pastor makes little of Christ. And then enslaves people once again to the law, as Paul says in verse 3, that if you accept the law, then you're obligated to follow the whole law, that it's going to master your life, that you have to do the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose what you want to do. You have to follow it, because if you think that's how you're going to be made right with God, it's going to become your master, and you're going to become a slave in it, and, and following it again. And so instead of being free in Christ, we become slaves. He also talks about how it's going to sever you from the doctrine of grace. It's actually going to sever you, just like circumcision severs the foreskin from the rest of the man. It's going to sever you from Christ and his grace. It's a vivid image, isn't it? That following the law cuts you off from this grace, this doctrine of grace that he is preaching to you. And finally, 
it loses hope that you should have. As he says in verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's saying that the gospel preaches this hope of righteousness and where is our hope? Is in Jesus Christ and we eagerly await the righteousness we have in Him. We eagerly await the time when we can stand before the judgment seat and say, it's not me, I have done nothing, I don't deserve Jesus Christ, here I stand and that is why I stand on. And that is our hope and righteousness. And so he says, if you follow the law, you disregard that hope, and actually you don't have any hope, because where is your hope? Your hope is in how well you can perform, how well you can do, how well you can follow. Maybe you're better than me, but I can't do that well at all. So you fail. But when you trust in Christ and trust in the freedom that he brings, we have the hope and righteousness. That it's not our righteousness that we stand before God in, but it is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is why we, we look to Christ and we look nowhere else. This is why Paul gets pretty animated about this false message. Because he's saying it's leading people away from salvation. It's leading people away from being with God. It's leading people away from the truth of how we can have peace with God. It's leading people to hell. And he says, this is no small matter. We have to focus on what the message says and once again remind people that Christ has saved them. Christ has done it all. So he sets up this, this dichotomy of this, this false message or freedom in Christ where the false message dishonors God but the freedom honors God because it's into how there's false teachers and there are true teachers. And these false teachers are coming and they're perverting the truth and they're dishonoring God because of that. In verse 7, he says, hey guys, you were running well. Meaning you were doing well. You guys were on track. You believed the gospel. You're living for Christ. You were running well, but now someone has come, and now they're, they're hindering you from obeying the truth. They're hindering you in your progress of how you follow God. He says these false teachers are coming behind me, and they're perverting the truth so that you are now stumbling. Where you, before you were running well, as, as faith again and again throughout the New Testament is described as the, this course marked out for us that we run, he says you were doing that well, but now something has happened and you're being hindered to be obedient in the truth. And he points to these false teachers, and he describes characteristics of these false teachers that First of all, that the false teachers hinder people from obeying the word, obeying the gospel, from obeying the truth. That false teachers are going to cloud the issue. They're going to pervert the gospel. They're going to make you look for hope in somewhere else. And so you don't now obey Christ and how he told you to respond to him, but now you're going to follow their arguments and their, their ways of thinking. That false teachers pervert or hinder uh, us from obeying this truth, whereas the true teachers who stand up for God and all that we do. That false teachers are not from God. And we see this in, in verse uh, uh, 8. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's basically saying, this argument that you're listening to, that somehow you're going to look towards the law instead of Christ, does not come from he who calls you. Does not from God, come from God who calls you. And he's setting up again this dichotomy about how he is Paul. If you remember how he introduced the whole um, letter, he says, Paul, an apostle not from men, 
nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Is this idea that he is called by God, that he comes from God bearing this message, but these false teachers are not from God who calls people to respond. And these false teachers not only are not from God, but they contaminate others with their perversion of the truth. As he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's funny, this image is used by Jesus several times through the gospel, talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, about how their, their teachings, about how they think they're going to be made right by following this law, leavens the whole lump. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees because it's dangerous. It contaminates people. It spreads. It's actually an argument, uh, an image used by Paul again um, in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> uh, chapter 5, talking about sin, about how sin, false teaching that we listen to these, these uh, false teachers, it spreads. It contaminates. It passes from one person to another. Before you know it, the whole lump of the church is infected with it. It's this idea that we got to watch out from these false teachers because they're going to be spreading untruths that pervert our understanding of who God is. And that false teachers finally, uh, will be judged because of this. As he says, that he's convinced that they'll stand firm because he's, he's praying for these, these Christians in Galatia, but these false teachers will bear the penalty. It's the idea that these false teachers are one day going to have to face the one they're defaming, the one they are, are speaking ill against, and they will bear the penalty. Again, it's opposed to that, the true teachers who have the hope of standing before God and being rewarded for being faithful to what he's called them to do. And finally, as he says, he experiences persecution, and so false teachers persecute those who stand on the gospel. But these false teachers are not just bringing a different teaching and saying, ah, oh, you can believe that, or you can believe this. No, they're fighting against Paul and they're saying, he should not be respected, he should not be honored. We actually should root out the gospel and believe this instead, and so he's being persecuted. And so true teachers, people who are preaching the gospel, should be expected. And all of this, He's talking about these false teachers, which lead to my favorite verse, I have to say, in the book of Galatians, which is verse 12, lead to this, this, this verse where he kind of says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's pretty strong talk, Paul. It's probably talk not fitting for a pastor. What are you doing? But you can see his passion and his clarity of message and purpose where he says these false teachers are perverting people's understanding on how they relate to God. They should just, he just wishes they would just go and just finish the job they started with circumcision. They should just go and just be eliminated from the gene pool. He doesn't want them around. And we read that and we say, that is so harsh. That's not loving. Paul, where's the love? I think we do that because so often in matters of faith, in matters of religion, we're so quick to fall back into how the culture sees things and we're like, ah, oh, I can believe this and you can believe that and we're fine. We're so quick to fall back and say, it's okay if they believe this, something contrary to gospel. I know the truth and I'll just be firm in my truth and that's okay. Because we think that's really loving. We think that's really tolerant. Preach the gospel to them in their church. He was around there when it was founded, and he knows them. He saw them accept Jesus Christ. He cares for them. 
And now he hears some people are coming and lead them away from Christ. And he knows this is their souls at stake. This is where they will dwell for eternity at stake. This is no small matter. This is not live in the live. This is people's eternity at stake. And he says, I wish these false teachers would go and finish the job and be eliminated and be gone. But I believe that passion is a good thing. And actually, we should have more of that passion when we're talking to our loved ones, when we're talking to friends, when we're talking to coworkers about Christ. We do it with gentleness and we do it with respect, but we have to have that same reality in our minds. This is eternity that's at stake. This is where someone is going to be, how they're going to relate to God. Is someone going to be with Him forever or are they not? And that should drive us to be a little bit more passionate in our pleas as we urge people to consider Jesus Christ and what he has done for them and how he has saved them. I love a quote by Charles Spurgeon talking kind of about this idea, this, this passion that we should have. And he says this, If sinners be damned, then perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That he knows the reality that we're talking about where people spend the rest of their eternity, the rest of their life. And so he says, this is a big deal. That we should have that same passion when we warn and, 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 and encourage people to consider Jesus Christ because this is honoring God with the freedom that we do have in America, the freedom we have in our life right now, to honor him and preach the truth of who Jesus is wherever we are. <clears throat> that we should honor God with our freedom. So what is, again, what is this freedom that we're talking about. When we touched on it briefly as Paul talks about this freedom that we have in Christ, this freedom from the law, that we don't have to follow the law anymore to be, to be approved by God. It's for freedom to approach God through Jesus Christ. It's the freedom from having to try to earn our place in His kingdom. That, is all, that, we, that Christ has achieved all that we need in Him and we believe in Him. This is the freedom we're talking about. And so then Paul talks about what this freedom is in flesh. As he says in verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. And this freedom is not, hey, I've been free with Christ. He's done everything I need for salvation. I got my heaven tickets punched. Let's live life. Woo! Who's coming with me? No, that's not the freedom that we're talking about. It's not freedom to do what we want. Because if we do what we want, if we're just going to run in license to sin and do whatever we want, that's not understanding of how our freedom was purchased for us by Jesus Christ. It's not to indulge our flesh. Rather, opposed to that, what it is, is we're supposed to love and serve each other. He actually says it even more dramatically in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, when he says, hey, once you were enslaved to sin, but guess what? You've been freed from that. Why? Now to be slaves to righteousness. That the reason we're saved is actually to be righteous in Christ. The reason we're saved and be freed from sin and from slavery to fall in the law is now to live for Christ in all of our life, to honor Him with all who we are. It's not freedom to indulge the flesh. It's also not freedom to exploit our neighbors. 
that we don't uh, use it as an opportunity just to look for ourselves, that we, we, we don't consider ourselves first in our freedom. That's not just to be something, hey, this is towards um, our neighbors and see that we're supposed to put them before ourselves and their good, their good being and, good, and wellness before our own. And so indulging in uh, uh, being free in the law, of be, oh my goodness, refraining Christ from the law does not mean to indulge in flesh, does not mean to exploit our neighbors, is to look out for ourselves. It also does not mean that we disregard the law. He says this great line, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes back to the law and says, hey, the law is actually fulfilled when we love people. And so we don't disregard the law when we are freeing Christ, thinking, hey, we don't have to follow the law anymore. We actually look to the law as good guideposts, as good guide rails for how we live our life and how we can love our neighbors well. We actually use the law to teach us, to grow us in how we live and serve Christ. Not as a way to get into his kingdom, but as a way to now live in light of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Historically, this is called the third use of the law, if you want to nerd out with some history, with um, some theological history, which I like to do. So that traditionally, when the people talk about the law, they talk about how it has one use. The first use was just to condemn people, to show people, hey, you need a savior. A second use is to build society. And then the third use of the law is the fact that we individually as Christians, we corporately as Christians, we take this law and we use it as an example, as guideposts and guardrails on how we respond to God. Never thinking that by following them that we earn anything, but think, looking to them as good guides for life. So we, this is not freedom to disregard the law. So what is it, this freedom that we have? We've talked about it briefly, but I just thought a quote by John Stott sums it up well, so well when he says, is freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to control the flesh. Freedom not to exploit our neighbor, but to serve our neighbor. Freedom not to disregard the law, but to fulfill the law. All who have been truly set free by Jesus Christ express their freedom in these three ways. Self-control, loving service to the neighbor, and obedience to God's law. That when we know the truth of where the Bible speaks, we follow it because we follow God because he has saved us. So what is this freedom that Paul says we have in Christ? It's the freedom to love and serve. <clears throat> not out of duty, not out of obligation, but over the, out of the overflow of the love that Christ has poured out on us, we now can serve and love others. That we can look to them and we want to serve them and love them so that we can show them the love of Christ so that, they, that Christ can be glorified, so that people can see us loving them and that they, they glorify God in heaven because of that, because they know who we represent and who we follow, that we're freed to love and serve like we're called to love and serve. That we're free to follow the law of God, not as a carrot just kind of dangling before us that we can never get, but we're free to follow the law of God as, as a guide, a road for us, and uh, telling us how we should live before our holy God. That we honor God with our freedom when we understand that we're free to love and serve and follow because he has freed us in Christ. Honor God with your freedom. So when you read this, 
How do we apply that to our lives? How do we do that? Well, one personal thing is that we grow in our freedom. That means we grow in our understanding about the freedom we have in Christ so that we can walk in light of it and walk as Christ. I say this is personal because each one of us, as we understand this, as we grow in this, can, can re- see how we're called to do these good things like read our Bible, pray, serve, give, but we don't do that to achieve or to earn, but we do that as a response and we grow in that. And we are operating from our freedom to love Him. Then corporately, together, so often, in America, we like to do individual application, we just do ourselves and no one can check us on it, right? Corporately, together, as a church, a community of faith, we protect each other from false teaching. That corporately, together, when something is said false, when we see someone following something, liking something on Facebook, posting something that is leading away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we with love, gentleness, engage in the conversation and say, what's up with that? That corporately together, we actually live in a community where we can hold each other accountable and keep each other true to the gospel. That we protect each other. We protect each other when we are living life together through small groups and discipleship groups, through all these, these ways in which we love each other. We protect each other as we listen to someone and we can hear how maybe some false teaching has crept into our minds when they're saying, maybe God doesn't love me as much because I haven't been true to my Bible memorization or my Bible reading. And we can say, whoa, stop right there. You're being infected by ways of thinking that are contrary to the gospel. And we protect their souls and we protect their hearts and say, where your status with Christ and before God is in Christ alone. It's not how well you achieve. It's not how well you do this. Those are good things doing what you're supposed to do. Or don't think of somehow you're going to be more blessed in life as he smiles upon you and grants you abundant flavors because you just happen to be having a better day. That we protect each other from false thinking so we can crow each other to rely on Christ and know who Christ is, and know who God is and how he has loved us and walk in it. Corporately, we do that, which presupposes that we are actually in each other's lives, which means we're in small groups or we have a discipleship group or we're actually sharing what we're processing through life with a fellow Christian so that we can be held accountable, so that we can grow together. And also corporately, together, we walk in love to serve others. That together, we love each other and we serve each other. Again and again, there's so many commands throughout the New Testament of one another's. Do this with one another, love one another, serve one another, be there for one another, bear each other's burdens, and on and on. We cannot do that alone. It actually only happens within the community of faith as we're together loving each other, serving one another, walking through life, with one another, holding up our first love of Jesus Christ, pointing again and again to the cross so that we know that's how we live in light of His sacrifice and how He has loved us. But we walk in love. And when we do these things personally and corporately, I believe we're honoring God with our freedom. Because we know that while we're free in Christ, He has saved us because of His grace, His mercy, not based on anything we've done We don't then use that as a license to go do what we want, but we do it. We use that to turn back towards the community, turn back to Christ, and serve Him, love Him, be as He has called us to be. Honor God with your freedom.
Join me in prayer. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, we can understand it, that we can be led in how we should live in light of you through it. Lord, I just ask that you continue to grow us in this. Continue to grow us in this understanding. Continue to grow us in confidence of your love and your mercy. That we can live in light of it, can walk in light of it. That we can love each other boldly. Serve each other sacrificially. Be in each other's lives for your glory. That we can honor you with all of our freedom. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.